Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we look at news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Today on the podcast, a walk along the Bund, Shanghai. The Bund, or Waitan in Chinese, is a waterfront strip which comprises of the former Shanghai International Settlement. All the buildings there have a grand colonial feeling, and it's right across the river from the Pudong district, which is some of the most modern and radical skyscrapers you'll see. The Bund has played a part in some of the most dramatic scenes of the Japanese occupation and cultural revolution the city has experienced. Our guide today is Associate Professor James Leibold from the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. We begin our walk in the foyer of the Shanghai Club, number two, the Bund. Yeah, so we're in the old, um, the old Shanghai Club, which uh, is one of the kind of grandest, and at the time uh, when it was built around, I think, 1909, one of the biggest and grandest buildings uh, on the Bund. Uh, it was the colonial hangout for uh, the foreign elite in the international settlement, and the, they would come here uh, to stay in, in the hotel as well as to socialize in the grand ballroom, which I think uh, this is the grand ballroom, uh, although this is the first time I've been inside. And then, of course, to hang out at the uh, famous, the infamous Long Bar, which um, at the time was supposed to be the biggest bar, longest bar in Asia made of marble and mahogany, uh, which um, has been recreated. That We'll have to go up and have a look at it if we can uh, and see, if it's, uh, see what it looks like. The Bund itself is an incredible long history. I mean, the name, to start with the name, based on the Hindi word band, which means embankment, it kind of symbolizes the fact that the, what today is the Bund really was a colonial construct, you know, that had extensions all the way back to the British Raj in India as well as in Hong Kong and this was the kind of Shanghai iteration of it. It came into being as a result of the first unequal treaty that the uh, West signed with China, the so-called Nanjing Treaty, that was signed in 1842 and ended the Opium War. Um, and it provided the foreigners with a series of concessions in China, five cities in particular, Shanghai was one of them. And the great myth is that, um, in the foreign mythology, is that there was nothing here. The Chinese gave it to the foreigners, and the foreigners made this uh, miraculous uh, city. That wasn't true. There was actually a thriving Chinese uh, city, known as the old Chinese walled city, which is down to the south of here, if I get my directions right. It was an important trading hub at the time, and, and in fact, uh, the reason uh, the Bund came into being at this place was that it was kind of north of the old Chinese uh, port section. And literally it began just as a kind of tow rope walking track. So in the old days, most of the traffic going up and down the Huangpu River was pulled by Chinese coolies who would pull ropes to pull the barges up the river. And, and so there was a, a footpath along the river north of the Chinese city. And that was the beginning of the Bund before there were any buildings like this one. Mm. You know, it went through a series of maybe you could say three or four stages over the time of its evolution. In the first uh, uh, period, say from 1842 up until 1880, there really were just a series of trading houses, single story, wooden framed trading houses built on stilts. And these were known as Hongs. You know, they would bring in goods in the ocean up through the Yangtze River into the Huangpu River. And then in these trading houses, uh, they would unload these goods and then begin the process of kind of selling them and, and transporting them across China. Uh, so these are just wooden structures. 
you know, massive in size, usually about an acre in size. Essentially a harbour for trade almost and you put all the cargo under there and it goes out to the rest of China, so it's a good place for that. The mouth of, um, you know, the Yangtze River, which is really the, the one of the three great rivers of China, this kind of central heartland, and so it was a way of, you know, bringing goods from Europe uh, and further afield into China, and, you know, Shanghai became an important kind of trading hub for all of China, and that's really how it started. It was all about trade. But what happened, you know, beginning around, say, 1880, 1890, is you had the development of uh, Shanghai as a kind of commercial hub and a finance hub. And it was during that stage that you had a, a kind of new wealth come into Shanghai, uh, a larger foreign population, and they started to uh, shift the trading, the actual trading of goods up north of the river. And so most of the trading houses went up there, and here on what is now uh, the Bund, they started to build these impressive kind of commercial banks and you know, insurance companies and trading hubs and stuff like that. And, you know, you had a mix of things. You had a lot of clubs like the Shanghai Club that we're sitting in now, but you had the, the development of more substantial buildings built off in a kind of neoclassical style, uh, and then later on a bit of Art Deco style as well. Was it constrained geographically? Are there border streets that these buildings and these sort of business could not extend beyond? And how much power, how much control did they have in their own jurisdiction? Yeah, that's a great question. It goes to the history of it. So these concessions uh, were created as a result of the Treaty of uh, Nanjing. Originally, there were at least three different concessions. There was the French concession, the British concession, and then the American concession. Uh, the Americans and the British joined together to eventually form the International Concession. We are sitting in the middle of the International Concession. A bit to the south, there was a bit of a, a riverfront area for the French Concession, which actually kind of snakes further back into Shanghai. But the French Concession and the International Concession were the two biggest concessions, and they had very clearly demarcated uh, boundaries uh, with uh, you know boundary stones. And inside those jurisdictions, uh, you were in uh, a zone that was under foreign control and foreign jurisdiction had its own municipal government that was controlled by the foreigners as well as its own legal system and so if anybody committed an act a crime inside the international sessions they were they were tried under english law uh, rather than under chinese law so it's a little piece of you know extra territoriality uh, that was carved out through the process of uh, foreign imperialism it, it strikes me as almost how we uh, apply the rules of embassies now so this land was, was British land, international land, came under that jurisdiction to the extent where, you know, did they have police? And yeah, they had police and they had their own um, army, particularly when the Japanese uh, started to bear down. And so part of the history of colonial Shanghai is as well the Japanese bombardment uh, starting in, uh, in the 1930s and then the eventual occupation of Shanghai. And so the international concession was seen as a kind of safe haven initially. And then, you know, the Japanese in 1937 actually occupied it and rounded up a lot of the foreigners. What happened is eventually the Japanese started to develop their own concessions, which were north near the, the bridge that we'll wander up to a bit later. So it's got a very complicated, colorful history. It's actually two more chapters. I mean, we can talk about the Chinese communists came in 1949 and um, seized back many of these colonial buildings, kicked out the foreigners completely. And then the kind of last stage of development after the reform and opening up of kind of 
preserving these colonial buildings and then reviving them and, and you know using foreign money like this former Shanghai club is now a Waldorf Astoria hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure who owns the Waldorf Astoria. Might even be Chinese out now, who knows? <laughs> but you know, you have this interesting kind of complicated relationship of China with foreign colonialism. You know, China says it's kind of been a victim of foreign colonialism, but yet now it's in many regards driving globalization, driving uh, neoliberal capitalism. You know, that allows the Bund to kind of come back in a new part of history. So should we go and see if the long bars is somewhere and then we'll go out? All right, so it turns out the long bar was closed. So we go back out onto the streets of Shanghai to continue our walk along the Bund. So let's go this way. Okay. The French concession was this little tiny little strip of land. So we're kind of represented by those three or four buildings there. Unlike the British and the Americans, the French uh, continued to use it as a kind of trading hub. And so it didn't develop the kind of grand buildings that exist here along the international concession. So if you go further south, you get to the Chinese walled city. And so we're going to walk uh, north along the extent of the, the international concession. When it came to, to further back in the time when the Japanese were here, can you tell me what happened then? You said that they, they kicked out the international people. You know, the Japanese were late to the imperialist game. You know, it wasn't until uh, 1895 when they defeated the uh, Chinese in the the First Sino-Japanese War that they began to gain concessions in China. And they eventually had a concession called Jabe, which is uh, further north, outside the international concession, uh, but on the other side of the bridge. And I think it was in 1931 there was this incident known as the Shanghai Incident where they started to fire guns in the uh, international concession and started a bit of a panic and people tried to get across the bridge into the international concession. A sanctuary kind of thing. Yeah, a sanctuary kind of thing. And then again in 1937 when the Japanese launched an all-out war on China, people tried to retreat into the international and French concessions as a kind of retreat, Uh, but eventually the Japanese uh, took over the concession. You know, some foreigners were rounded up, some were kept in detention centers. Throughout the war, the others uh, just packed up and left. Yeah. This part of uh, China was under Japanese occupation up until 1945. All right, so now we continue our tour by going to the HSBC building, which is number 12, the Bund. So we've, uh, we've just gone past HSBC, so they were originally, originally, yeah, I say... So we're going to walk down to the, the original... Um, well, when I say the original, the grandest HSBC building. So HSBC the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, which uh, despite the name was a British colonial bank, which had its headquarters both in Shanghai and Hong Kong, uh, was one of the most powerful financial institutions during the colonial period. And in 1930s, they built this headquarters here in Shanghai. And, you know, it's, it's probably still to this day the grandest building on the Bund, certainly the biggest of the structures most modern of bank uh, buildings um, and still is an incredibly impressive structure. When China opened back up in the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, HSBC, which is still a bank, tried to uh, reacquire the lease to the building but were unsuccessful. It is now the Shanghai Pudong Development Bank um, and HSBC, which I've just seen, has actually reacquired, hang on a second, a building along the Bund 
which is not nearly as nice. <laughs> it's a poor cousin to this, this structure, which was um, amazing. And it's got these lions at the front. I love the lions. They're great. Yeah, the lions are replicas yeah. of the original ones. If I remember correctly, were kind of taken away during the Cultural Revolution. They weren't destroyed. I think they're now in um, the Shanghai Historical Museum. But these are replicas that were built uh, after they redeveloped it. But, you know, it's built in kind of neo-colonial style um, and just has some amazing kind of mosaic work uh, that hopefully we can go inside and just have a look at it. Which, interestingly, people had kind of forgot about. So during the Cultural Revolution, again, this might be mythology, but at least this is my understanding of it. The Red Guards wanted to destroy a lot of the mosaics. And one of the old uh, guards said, no, no, it's much, e much easier and more efficient to just paint over them. There, I got separated by a rotating door. Whoa, look at that. Yeah, there they are. So it's just incredible. I mean, it's all been completely redone. And up on the, the roof are the places where HSBC had branches. So you can see the London kind of headquarters, and you had New York, Paris, Calcutta, Tokyo, Shanghai, and Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, on the ceiling, uh, mosaic tile of, uh, appears to be kind of... Uh, That's uh, Apollo. Apollo, is it? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Greek, yeah. Greek mythology. There's a lot of Greek mythology. Dragging yeah. the sun across... Yeah. Now next door to number 13, the Bund, the Customs House. Yeah, they probably don't like tourists coming in there doing yeah, that. Yeah, they don't have a problem with you and I talking <laughs> to this fuzzy... Uh, so sometimes foreigners still can get away with a few things uh, that Chinese people can't. I mean, the Bund itself has evolved, you know, over, you know, 150 years. But, you know, even under the communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party, it's had uh, various... Um, periods of uh, revival as well and so this is the old customs house looks like we can wander in so we'll have to have a look under the terms of the treaty of Nanjing the treaty that ended the opium war and established the uh, French and international concessions there was a set tariff to be collected on all trade coming in and out of uh, Shanghai the customs uh, department was responsible for collecting that tariff so it was always a very important institution a kind of quasi-foreign Chinese institution because actually it was, it was headed by a British man, Robert Hart, for many years. And again, like other buildings, it had different iterations. In fact, there used to be a couple customs buildings. There was one down by the Chinese walled city that would collect uh, you know, tariffs on any trade down there. And then there was, there was always a customs house here on the Bund. And this building, like most of the other buildings, is from the 1920s. So this is the old uh, bell cast in England, the bell. And um, a lot of things about the Bund, there's a lot of mythology, but at the time it was supposedly the biggest bell in China. The clock was designed to be a kind of replica of um, Big Ben. And supposedly, and there's a lot of supposedly, so I have to say, you'd have to do a lot of serious historical digging to see if anything is accurate, that during the Cultural Revolution, the bell used to play the East is Red, the Maoist uh, anthem. But I was told also, that the bell couldn't do it, so they actually used loudspeakers to fake broadcast, it. yeah, to fake it. I don't know how much of that is true, but, um, but the, yeah, the bell is still there. Interesting that they're replicating Big Ben by building that, that they're trying to have a slice of England over in the east. Shanghai was known as the Paris of the East, you know, the Pearl, the Orient, you know, had all these uh, nicknames. I mean, these buildings were always a mix of companies from, with connections from different countries, you know, mainly British and American, but, you know, there, there are Japanese-owned buildings. Um, even the first uh, Bank of China building was here. You know, other foreign countries as well, Portuguese, Russians, 
etc. If you had international people working here, where were they living? Were there residential buildings and those kind of things behind this? Yeah, so most of the uh, French and international concession snake backwards uh, from the Bund. And if you wander back in through the streets, you'll see some incredible colonial mansions. I mean, it's still probably one of the most distinct things. There are two things I think to really distinguish Shanghai is one, the colonial architecture, not only this here at the Bund, but these residential houses back in the concession, as well as the, the plane trees, a direct result of the influence of Paris in French architecture to plant plane trees along the streets that are beautiful because, you know, in winter they shed their leaves and let the sun in, but in the summer they block the oppressive heat. So what does modern Shanghai think about this? Because, I mean, beautiful old buildings, to my western eye, but to China, isn't this, you know, part of the colonial chapter that they might rather forget? That's gone through periods of change and transition, certainly in the 1950s through the to the Cultural Revolution, it was uh, yeah it was a blight. It was something that China would rather have kind of brushed under the rug. And there was talk about destroying a lot of these buildings in the 1950s. But you know, China was a very poor country at that time, and um, they needed these buildings for their functionality. And so they sat there, they were used, but they were by no means uh, celebrated. You know, it was after reform and opening up under Deng Xiaoping that they began to kind of uh, restore them and then kind of celebrate that past. And I mean, Shanghai's always been the most cosmopolitan of Chinese cities. And the Shanghai people are proud of their um, colonial history, much like the people of Hong Kong are. And they have gone about kind of celebrating that. And, you know, you can think of it as, a, you know, China now at the forefront of global capitalism and Shanghai leading the way. And so in some ways, these buildings, which were once a kind of a symbol of uh, weakness and humiliation have now uh, been reimagined as signs of China's kind of commercial dominance in the world today. So I mean we're standing outside the original home of the Palace Hotel. So in addition to mainly banks and financial institutions, you know, there were a number of important hotels along here and the uh, Palace Hotel was one of the, the first grand hotels built around the same time as the Shanghai Club. Uh, you can see now it's I mean, not very impressive kind of what four-story building. Now on the bottom floor it's an Omega watch shop. Across the road from it was built, when it was built in the 1930s, the most important and impressive hotels in the Shanghai International Concessions, Sassoon House, now called the Peace Hotel, which was um, built under the leadership of um, Victor Sassoon, who was um, a Sephardic Jew from Baghdad, who uh, was educated at um, Eton and graduated from Cambridge, established one of the great trading houses with links into India, Hong Kong and Shanghai. And he created the, the Peace Hotel and then had his private residence up on the top floor there, you can, which you can still see today. And it was built in a kind of art deco architectural style. And in fact, still to this day, Shanghai has got some of the best examples of art deco uh, architecture. It's one of the grandest hotels, and um, I was very lucky to have stayed in it. It was around uh, 2000. And a bank. And a bank, yeah. It's got Citibank at the bottom floor, and I think Citibanks have been there for a long time. Across the street from the Sassoon Hotel, the Bank of China, number 23, the Bund. So this is the Bank of China that was built in the 1930s. Originally, the Chinese wanted to design it to be a 38-storey tower, which would have been by far the biggest 
tower on the Bund. You know, it was one of the last buildings to be built on the Bund. But Victor Sassoon immediately objected when it came before the Shanghai Municipal Council. He didn't want any building that would be higher than his building next door, particularly his uh, private apartment. And so he forced them to essentially cut it in half, but it kind of stops kind of prematurely as to not uh, overtower the Peace Hotel next door. Amazing that he won that argument. Oh, but you know, this is um, this was his land. Yeah. You know, Victor Sassoon was one of the most powerful people in the international concession. Down the road now to number 33, the Bund, former residence of the Consulate General of the United Kingdom. Part of the grounds have now been used as the site of the Peninsula Hotel. So this is a new structure. This is the Peninsula Hotel. I don't know, is it a Hong Kong owned hotel company? I know there's a Peninsula Hotel in Hong Kong. Built on part of the property that used to be the British Embassy Consulate, I guess, given that the capital was not in Shanghai. But, you know, this was by far the biggest property on the Bund and one of the oldest over the left, which was the old uh, residence of the Consul General, as well as the, uh, the court in which, you know, foreigners and Chinese would be tried as a result of this being kind of British and American territory. Uh, so now it's open. So it's never been open. It's been redone. I was reading the other day and it's now a kind of a series of restaurants. Uh, but this is the first time I've entered this property as well, which is kind of exciting. It says number one Waitan, 33 the Bund. So Waitan is the, is the Chinese term for the Bund, okay? Yeah. So Waitan itself means the outer bank. And it's part of the reference to the fact that the inner bank was around where the old Chinese city was. And so where the, the original trading was before the international and French concessions was created. Uh, then creating the kind of Waitan, the outer bank. But it looks like the, the numbers go quite possibly in opposite directions. So the Bund, we were at number one Bund. So number two is the Shanghai Club. And now we're at number three. In Chinese, if you want to talk about the Waitan, this seems to be number one Waitan. We now walk to the Waibaidu Bridge, which crosses the nearby Sujio Creek. It's called a camel back design bridge and uh, there are not too many left in the world. So it's known as the, the Wai Baidu bridge in Chinese or in, in English it was known as the garden bridge. The 110 years old at the time was the first steel bridge in um, all of China. You know designed and uh, built with steel from England and its goal was to kind of link up two really important halves of the international concession which were divided by the Suzhou Creek, which we're standing over at the moment. Uh, you know, originally there were a series of wooden bridges that were built, going back to the 1870s and 1880s. This, when it was built, was a really important kind of thoroughfare between these two halves of the international concession. The Suzhou Creek was always, for a long time, was one of the most polluted creeks in all of China. And I can remember standing here in the, um, you know, in the 90s, late 90s, and you just get this waft of putrid smell coming off the, the creek. They've done a, you know, they spent a lot of money trying to clean it up. It doesn't smell bad. You can see how the British international kind of architecture continues back there for yeah, a little that's bit. A, that's the old postal station there. It's a beautiful building as well, post office. Uh, there's a great museum in there, a postal museum in there nowadays. Yeah, so I mean the colonial architecture goes deep back into that area. So this area over here on the other side of the river was part of the international concession but further afield was the Jabe district, which became the Japanese uh, concession. 
And so you had this little area of the international concession kind of wedged in between the Japanese and then this very strategic important bridge, uh, which became a source of a great deal of conflict uh, as the Japanese encroached on China. You had the uh, American embassy, the Russian embassy, which is still there. I'll walk down here a little bit. So my favorite um, building on the, the Bund is the old Astor Hotel, which is now the Pujang Hotel, originally built in the 1880s, so well before the Sassoon House or the Peace Hotel. And at the time, it was the grandest and the best hotel in all of Shanghai. So many visiting dignitaries, uh, presidents, uh, stayed at the uh, Astor Hotel. We finish our tour of the Bund standing in the Huangpu Park, next to the bridge and on the boardwalk of the Bund. Where we're standing right now is um, arguably one of the most politically charged parts of China. Created when they created the, the embankment that became the, the Bund, and this little area here they created a small park, which became known as Huangpu Park. And it was governed by a series of regulations that were passed by the Shanghai Municipal Government, including uh, regulations that limited access uh, to Chinese people, as well as dogs. Although it did allow Chinese amas or Chinese helpers to bring foreign kids in. So it was a small park, but it had a little rotunda, tennis court, nice garden. But as Chinese nationalism began to develop in the uh, early 20th century, it became a particularly important symbolic issue of foreign imperialism mm. against the Chinese. People began to talk about this beautiful park on the banks of the Huangpu River that uh, forbid both dogs and Chinese uh, from entering. This area is pretty you know, sensitive as a result of that, and so after um, the communists took control, uh, they rebuilt this uh, monument to the uh, revolutionary people's heroes. So it's a kind of version of the one that exists in Beijing, placed right here to kind of uh, symbolize that you know, China had been liberated and the Chinese people were back in control. And underneath that is, is a museum all about the park <laughs> and the humiliation all the negative aspects of, you know, the colonial period, of foreign imperialism, the creation of the Bund. An interesting statement to put that here, kind of like putting a lid on it. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it, kind of a lid on it and cap that past. Not to sweep it under the rug, but to also to kind of contain it. Because if you're going to rebuild the Bund back up and restore these uh, colonial buildings, uh, you need to in some way make your peace with that past. And I think, you know, Shanghai's a lot about kind of moving past that. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud. Reviews, as always, are appreciated. You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. And you can follow James Leibold. He's at Jay Leibold. That's it today for the podcast. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>